The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Our first guest up today, Chris Wilson, founder and CEO of WPA Intelligence. Prior to starting WPA in 2004, Chris was global director of research for Weber Shandwick International, the world's largest public relations firm at the time. In 2021, he was named Pollster of the Year by the American Association of Political Consultants for his work directing survey research and predictive analytics, can't speak this morning, on the Glenn Youngkin for Governor of Virginia campaign in 2019. He was named Technology Leader of the Year by Campaigns and Elections. Awfully impressive resume. Chris, thank you again for joining us, and welcome back to the program. Well, thanks. I made it all up in Senate. You know, the texts are real, so nobody's out there. That's okay. Checking. That's okay. It's 2023. You can do whatever you want now. <laughs> this is radio. We're good with fluff. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Before we, get to, before we get talking some politics, um, tell us a little bit. Your son's playing co- at, at University of Oklahoma and playing quarterback, right? He, well, no. We had, they actually moved him to tight end. So really? I appreciate you asking. Yeah. it's uh, nice. He's played quarterback his whole life. He was recruited out of high school to a small college in Iowa as a quarterback, but uh, decided he wanted to come home. And it was a long story. I actually ran into uh, former Oklahoma coach Bob Stoops at a fundraiser for Kevin Stitt, who's a client of mine, the governor of Oklahoma, and they got to talking. And one thing led to another. You know, Stoops is a walk-on wide receiver. Stoops' son is a walk-on wide receiver at Oklahoma, and he was, they were talking about that. And so Denver, yeah, he moved back and uh, walked on in the in the spring, and he got to play uh, about probably two-thirds of snaps in the spring game, and uh, we'll see. I, I have high hopes for him. The kid works his tail off, and he's uh, really a proud Qu- daddy. Quarterback moving to any kind of receiver position, you just up your chance to get drafted by Bill Belichick. That's right. That's all there is to That's it. Right, That's yeah. right, That's, Six, uh, yeah. Six, three, about 210-pound tight end. You can get out there and rumble a little bit. Yeah, there you go. Um what a wonderful experience. I know you're a big University of Oklahoma fan, so that's probably extra pleasure for you, seeing your boy out there. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's very cool. I'm pretty excited that's about That's very it. cool. And, you know, they'll be out playing at BYU this year. That's right. We're going to see you out there for dinner. Looking forward to it. You'll, you'll enjoy the Provo experience. All right. We're going to play a clip real quick. We'll click here real quick here. We'll click on Kamala Harris's word salad yesterday about culture. Jeremy, go ahead. Well, I think culture is, it, it is a reflection of our moment and our time, right? And, and, and present culture is the way we express how we're feeling about the moment. And, and we should always find times to express how we feel about the moment that is a reflection of joy because, you know, it comes in the morning. <laughs> we, have, we have to find ways to also express the way we feel about the moment in terms of just having language and, and, and a connection to how people are experiencing life. And I think about it in that way, too. So Kamala reminds me a lot of you or I or Sam when we were in elementary school asked to give a book report in front of the class and we had not read the book. I mean, that's basically what she talks like, right? It's just yeah, many as exactly words as possible. Thinking. So mm-hmm. my question for you is, and you've done so much polling for so many years, does the vice presidency even matter anymore regarding how we view the presidency? I mean, because 
who no one takes her serious. I mean, polling shows that. Kamala Harris yeah, no, brought to you by White Claw. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a word salad that gets word salad with a bad name. And she doesn't, she clearly has no idea what she's talking about. And anytime she starts riffing on time or moment, you know it's going to get good fast. <laughs> right. And it's also, it's, it's cringeworthy in the sense that even if you disagree with her and uh, are, are, are sort of watching, sitting back going, well, okay, this is now people are going to realize who she is. You're also thinking how embarrassing for the United States of America that this woman is in the second highest office, I guess it's arguable, but one of the highest offices in the land, and she can't deliver a simple sentence without a without embarrassing herself. And then she the, in the morning, and then she ca- does that cackle thing. It's it's really embarrassing, and it's embarrassing for the administration. And somebody's got to just cut her off. They need to let to travel around like one of those big hooks that they used to have on game shows shows back yeah. in the fifties and sixties, and just kind of pull her off but, stage before she goes so far that uh, the dollar starts losing value. But so my question, yeah, I mean, so does she prove that who we? So you're working for the Super PAC for Ron DeSantis, correct? I am. That's okay. Correct. So you've, you've, I'm sure this is not the primary object of your research, but I'm sure you've thought about who's the best fix for him, right? Do you think, unless you get a real popular governor in a battleground state who actually has a political organization, do they really matter at all? Well, you kind of you kind of answered the question with your <laughs> preamble to the question is, yes, it can matter a lot. Did it matter for Joe Biden? No, because it was uh, an affirmative action pick, sort of like his Supreme Court pick was. He made it very clear that he was looking for an African-American woman, and that he just wanted somebody to fill that role. And so it doesn't matter. Let's go back a step, though, is remember whenever Joe Biden was rolling very damaged into South Carolina, and he got the endorsement of a very important member of Congress by committing to that member of Congress that he would appoint a black woman as VP and or as to the Supreme Court. And things turned around for him there because that vote constituency matters in the Democrat primary in South Carolina. So he went from someone who was in danger, uh, grave danger, of coming in distant in the primaries, as he had in Iowa and New Hampshire, to moving back into the frontrunner status. So it mattered to him in the primary. And um, did it matter in the general for him? No, it didn't. But I think you could argue that you can look at past picks that did have a a strong impact. And, um, you know, I think about Lloyd Benson, even though he lost, but for Michael Dukakis had a big impact for him in 88, probably uh, made a a pretty significant difference. I think Al Gore had a big impact for Bill Clinton. He was able to deliver Tennessee. It's the last time, you know, Tennessee went for a Democrat in in there have certainly been picks that, that had impact. Kamala, though, Chris, I, I have to ask, I mean, I don't remember her being this incoherent previously. And it's not age like Joe Biden. So what the heck is going on? Or, or did we all just miss it and she actually was this this absolutely <laughs> uh, this big a mess? Well, I don't think many people paid attention to her as a senator from California Correct. or an attorney general from California. And the good thing about being a prosecutor is, you're, you're, one, you don't really do much prosecuting in those roles. You have people who do it for you. Two, uh, your line's pretty scripted before you walk out there. And when she's on script, she's not bad. I mean, she can deliver a good speech. But it's just whenever she starts riffing, and I think she's developed a little bit too much confidence in her ability to do so. And so that's how you end up with the sort of comment, the sort of ongoing 
uh, embarrassing moments that you saw, I think it was yesterday, when she gave the cringe speech. How does someone not pull her aside on her staff and be like, this is terrible, you need to fix this? Well, have you read much about the situation with their staff? I mean, it's every, it's every time they do a camera uh, angle, you they all are just sitting there staring at you. You want them to blink if they need help. And it's, uh, <laughs> I feel like there is a, there's probably not anyone who can deal with her in that way that's on her staff. She just seems to be one of those horrible bosses that just runs through people on an ongoing basis, and it's a it's an unfortunate story. And you know, it's I often joke around that being a Democrat press secretary is going to be the easiest job on the planet, uh, and this is a, certainly a representation of that because you think through, what if we had, if you were working for someone like that, Chuck, and you're doing all political campaigns on a major level, or if I was today, there's no way you could survive that kind of situation. No. You, know, you have one misstepped word or, you know, you think back to whenever uh, – Whenever Dan Quayle put an extra E on potato because that was on the card in front of him, and it was a story that went on for weeks, if not months, and she's able to just roll right through this stuff as if it's we're being unfair or overly critical by by analyzing the fact that she can't put together a simple sentence about what culture is or what time is or what moments are. Um, all right, let's go. Let's talk. Let's talk presidency. Um, what issues do you feel are the winning issues? for whoever the Republican candidate will be to defeat Joe Biden? Uh, I think that starts and almost ends with the economy. Uh, you've got to understand that it, that Americans are hurting. The price of everything has gone up substantially under Joe Biden, that the price, it is almost cost prohibitive for people to be able to commute to work on an ongoing basis. And that's by design, frankly, by the Biden administration. And so those are the, those are the, contrasts that have to be drawn and that and they're important it's uh it really just the overall significant the overall ability of america to continue to succeed is uh is coming is dependent on that and so i'd say that's number one and if you were to go to a second point i think there is a little bit of building not a little bit but there's a lot of rebuilding america's stature in the world after uh, the withdrawal in afghanistan the way China has acted toward us, the way that uh, Russia has acted toward us, there is just a complete dismissal of the United States as a foreign power at this point. I think that's an that is an important aspect. Someone who can reclaim that, and, and I think there it another important aspect is just the over uh, important issue is the ability of parents to raise their own children. It is an a stunning development. The way that Democrats have tried to get between parents and their kids. And uh, I'll tell you, it's one of the reasons why you mentioned at the beginning that I'd worked for Glenn Youngkin. It's one of the reasons why Glenn Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe, because uh, Terry McAuliffe said, made the famous gaffe that he didn't want parents telling teachers what they should teach their kids. And moms and dads in Virginia rose up and said, no, I disagree with that. And I really think that, and to be clear, I'm on the super PAC side, uh, the protest and super PAC side. So let me compliment the campaign. They put out a video yesterday on, from Moms for DeSantis, in which Casey DeSantis talked about the role that Governor DeSantis has played in the state of Florida of protecting the rights of parents to raise their kids in the way they want to and to stop any woke teachers or woke systems from being able to intervene 
in the right of a parent to make decisions for their children, their children's education, their children's uh, the way their children are raised, whether or not their children are able to go and mutilate themselves with a doctor or have themselves mutilated by a doctor. Uh, it's just the overall the, the decisions that or the the process that's going on right now. Those of us who have kids have kids, and Chuck, as you know, I have five. That the attempt of the left to get between a parent and their children and inject themselves into everything from the education to the raising to even the mutilation of that child is stunning to me that they believe that that is okay. And so I think that is also going to become, it's a major issue that's going to come to light, uh, particularly if Governor DeSantis is the nominee because of what he's been able to do to protect a parent's rights in Florida. And I think that is uh, could be the difference between a Republican winning and a and right. losing right. Uh, again like we did in 2000. Great. Well, um, we're going to take a quick break. We're with Chris Wilson. You can find him on Twitter at WilsonWPA. You can also find him on Instagram at WilsonWPA. Follow Chris. He has great insights. Um, you'll stay up to date on what's going on in country. This is Chuck Warren, Sam Stone at BreakingBattlegrounds.vote. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, it's been another crazy week on the stock market. And if you need a opportunity to make a very high fixed rate of return, if you're looking for a fantastic return that's not coupled to the stock market, where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises, you need to check out our friends at investyrefi.com. InvestYRefi is connecting uh, student loan borrowers to uh two investors, and they are just doing great for people on both sides. It's a fantastic opportunity. We highly encourage you to check it out. Go to their website at investyrefi.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. All right, continuing on with Chris Wilson of WPA Intelligence. Chris, you are working in the primaries right now. One of the things I think there's obviously a lot of noise with Trump and DeSantis and some of the other candidates out there. But in terms of the issues, what issues should Republican voters be focusing on or or Republican candidates be focusing on first to win the primary? But second, and more importantly, set themselves up to win the general election. You know, I I think from an issue standpoint, kind of what we covered in the last segment is uh, is what matters. I mean, all of those issues matter for Republican primary voters, too. The economy, uh, parents' right to raise their own children, uh, strong education, things like that. But I'll tell you what, if I were <clears throat> advising candidates directly, and if I, and particularly if I was advising, this, this kind of gets into, you move down from the presidential campaign, because I still work with, and, and WP Intelligence, we work with dozens, uh, sometimes even hundreds of candidates uh, around the country. And one of the things I can tell you I hear from them to a person is a concern about who is at the top of the ticket in 2024. And I'll tell you, this is not to, to nerd out too much on you guys, but there's been a lot of academic research that's been done about the impact that Donald Trump has had since he emerged on the political scene on elections. And everything, be careful what you wish for, impact of President Trump endorsement of the midterms by Ballard and others, comparing the impact of Joe Biden on popular attitudes of the parties by Jacobson, uh, 22 elections by also by Jacobson. But the most recent one, which is really an interesting one, by experimental evidence on public perceptions of Trump endorsements 
uh, by Barron, McLaughlin, and others, all quantify the impact that Trump has had going back to 2018 on close elections. And the reason why this matters is if Democrats take a majority in the Senate, they're going to stack the Supreme Court, they're going to get rid of the filibuster, they're going to make D.C. and Puerto Rico states. These aren't these aren't like pie in the sky speculation. These are things they say they want right. to do. They would do today yeah, they, if it wasn't. They've been very clear. And, they want to do yeah. everything you just said. So the study I just mentioned by Baron McLaughlin and Boyle on experimental evidence on public perception of Trump endorsement is that when Trump gets involved in a race, it actually costs that candidate seven points. So it goes a high from nine to a low of five in a competitive general election. So I want you to think back to last cycle. You know, obviously uh, in Utah, Mike Lee got into a close race. He was able to pull it out at the end. But there were some close races we didn't pull out. In Arizona, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, we almost, when I think about how far behind uh, Governor DeWine, J.D. Vance ran in Ohio, all of those are states are races where Trump had an impact. And so you can quantify that number at 79%. So we as Republicans, I think, should really care about what happens if we have somebody at the top of the ticket that takes seven to nine points off of every single candidate who's running in a competitive race? Yeah, that's a- and you can real quickly run down the numbers and think about how many House and Senate seats we would ultimately lose. Yeah, I mean, that's a bloodbath that, that you're describing. And one of the things, Chris, that I, I don't think I, – I haven't really seen polling that quantifies this – um, more so I'm just dealing with anecdotal evidence from independent voters or soft voters, whatever you want to call them, they are completely hardened against Trump, rightly or wrongly. And this is one of the things I tell a lot of Trump supporters. And moving more against him, by the way. Yeah, and, and moving the, more against him. surveys, they continue to move more against him. Yes. And, and so, I mean, for him to – if he's going to be at the top of the ticket, he and his team have to address that. There's no evidence they're doing so. I mean, they're doubling and tripling down on all the things that are driving that cohort away. No, I agree. And it's a, it is a real problem because there is nothing that's been done since 2020 to change the face of the election. If you believe that <clears throat> that weird things went on in Georgia and Arizona last time, well, there's, there's nothing that's being done by their campaign to guard against that. And I'll tell you, there are weird things that happen in elections, no question about it. We had as many people, as many lawyers in Virginia at the Yunkin headquarters as we did staffers because we wanted to guard against that. That's how you have to do it in any close election. You just, it's, it, that has been the case since I've been involved in politics, which has been over 20 years. And so you've got to guard against that. You've got to understand the rules and play against it. You know, I grew up playing basketball, and I was there when the three-point line came out. My coach hated the three-point line. We said, well, we still have to use it. Well, the same thing is true with with ballot harvesting. I may hate that as a rule, but I can't leave that to the Democrats to do all by themselves. And so we will compete at that level, and we have to be able to compete at that level. And I think that's the challenges that exist is if Donald Trump is the nominee, Republicans lose in 24, and they probably – yeah, 24, and they probably lose the House and the Senate by by historical numbers – and it puts us in a situation where America in 2025 and 2026 is a very different place than we live in today. But I don't mean to end on a down, down note, but since you asked, I think that is the most important thing that every voter should take into account when they cast their ballot for in any primary in right. 2024. And, and Chuck, if the things that Chris just said listed at the start of this segment come true, in other words, court packing, right. Puerto Rico, D.C., there's no recovery for Republicans. No. That's right. No, no, there is not. 
Um, Chris, what is something we've talked about these main issues, um, um, the economy, you know, we have we now have out today that they did a poll of twenty five hundred U.S. adults and they said they need to earn two hundred thirty three thousand dollars a year to feel financially secure. Then you have America's role in the world. And I think one big thing about that's always been is our role as the preeminent power made us feel safe. But I also think Americans like being number one. I mean, just look at Olympic mm-hmm. sports, right, when we win, right? And then we have the parents, um, you know, being able to, you know, decide what their children do. What are other issues with your crystal ball and research that you think lawmakers need to start paying more attention to that can be that can really turn quickly against conservatives? Well, another one that I think is uh, has really come to the top is woke is the wokeness in corporations, and I think the the uh, the sort of forcing their values on Americans. And we've seen a lot of backfire on that. We certainly see a backfire with Target, with Bud Light, and uh, it, it's uh, even Ben and Jerry's over the weekend where they said you know, every uh, every yes. company built on a tribe should give that land back. Everyone should give them a try. And then it turns out they're, national, they're corporate headquarters on a tribe. They've lost $2.5 billion in corporate value since that happened. So because from people from people selling stock in their, and the collapse of the company, so I think those are other aspects of it that where you look at someone who has been willing to take on woke the woke corporate left and stand up to them and take away things like tax incentives they asked for, which really I would argue that tax incentives are a conservative way of uh, approaching uh, work with corporations from a from a local government standpoint. Okay. Uh, and so I think those are aspects that matter too, and it's an important thing for us to pay attention to. Well, Chris, we sure appreciate you joining us today and wish you the best of luck this cycle. We hope to have you on again before uh, the Christmas season. Uh, folks, please follow Chris Wilson at Wilson WPA at Twitter. Same thing on Instagram, Wilson WPA. There you can learn. You can follow University of Oklahoma football quite well. And you can also, <laughs> you can also, you can also stay in touch with the research that's going on in our country. Chris, we sure appreciate your time, and we hope you have a fantastic weekend, my friend. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can follow us at breakingbattlegrounds.boat and listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Continuing on with our fantastic guests for today, we have Maya McGinnis, president of the Bipartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Boy, is that something we have needed for a long time. She is an expert in budget tax and economic policy uh, and has worked closely with members of both parties and serves as a trusted source on Capitol Hill. Maya, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Yeah, happy to join so both the left and right seem to be like keystone cops on the national debt and budget deficit. They both think this is the one way or highway, and that's the only way that works. So let's take, for example, let's start first with the belief that you can just tax your way out of this by taxing everybody who has money in the country. Is that possible? There's not a chance. This is, 
a problem that, quite frankly, you're going to have to put everything on the table in order to get where we need to fiscally. But the notion that you can just do this by raising revenues, and you'll hear people who make that case saying, listen, we're one of the lowest taxed countries in the world. We can certainly have higher taxes. True, we can have higher taxes. True, we're going to have to have higher taxes. But absolutely not the case that you can fix this problem entirely on the revenue side of the budget. The biggest growth in our budget imbalances comes from growing health care costs, growing retirement costs, most of those fueled by the aging of the population, uh, and growing interest costs because we've borrowed so much. Payments on the debt are the fastest growing part of the budget. So no matter how much you bring your revenues up, the fact that spending is still going to be going growing faster than your economy means it won't be able to keep pace, and you're going to have to bring some of those spending levels back under control. All right, so now let's go to the argument the right likes to make. We can just cut all these programs, and we can do this all and budget everything, balance it in 10 years. Is that reality? Yeah, that also not true and not even close. One of the things during the debt ceiling debt fight that I was really worried about was that people who, who thought you could do this on the spending side and wanted to be aggressive and are fiscally focused, which I am, and I share those beliefs, but I was worried they would overshoot and that they would say we have to balance the in 10 years and do so by spending cuts. We're not going to be able to come anywhere close to balancing the budget in 10 years. To do so would take saving about $16 trillion over that 10-year period. The last time we saved $16 trillion was easily never. <laughs> not, e- <laughs> not even close, right? So that's, that's just not even in the realm of the possible. Now, a fiscal metric that I think is aggressive but doable would be what if we just stabilized our debt so that it's not growing faster, uh, that doesn't grow up to above where it is right now, which is almost 100% of GDP? Just doing that over 10 years so that we keep it at the same level of debt to GDP, that would require $8 trillion in savings. That is an aggressive amount. It is doable, but it is not doable on just the spending cut side of the budget. There's no way that no matter you know how, how much you pull back these programs, no realistic way that you could cut spending enough to save $8 trillion. The trajectory... So we're we're mist-busting here, which is good because everybody's out there making problems well, that what, don't make sense. I, I, I mean, I'm convinced, you know, with our show, we have people, I mean, we're conservative, um, but I, I don't think people understand math anymore. That's my concern. I yeah. mean, this is, this is yellow pad, pencil in hand math, and no one wants to seem to admit it, and we all created this problem. So we're all going to have to work together to get out of the problem. Boy, do I agree with that one. And let me talk about that fuzzy math, because basically what you have on both sides of the aisle now is kind of made up fairy tale economics. So on the Republican side, you'll hear time and time again, we're going to cut taxes. It's going to generate so much growth. It's going to pay for itself. Just nowhere close to reality. If you cut taxes, it is going to help grow the economy. And it will do so so that it generates about 20 cents for every dollar you spend on tax cuts. So you still have to offset the bulk of those tax cuts by cutting spending or raising other taxes. And then on the left, you hear things like, this policy is so important, we shouldn't have to pay for it. Just not true. Like, if something's important, (laughs) the whole point of budgeting is you should pay for it. And if it's not important, you shouldn't do it. But the other thing that we've been hearing is people for the past year saying, don't worry, we can just print more money. That is so fundamentally wrong. And we've seen that it's wrong because we've just had a huge bout and are still in the midst of, of high inflation kicked off because we, we put too much money in the economy 
borrowing for COVID was the right thing to do. But the last bill that we did put way too much money in the economy and created this inflationary problem that has only gotten worse uh, with with additional factors exacerbating it. So there's a lot of made up economics out there. There's a lot of made up mathematics. This basically comes down to the basic issue of budgets and trade offs. We shouldn't be borrowing as much money as we are. And I can talk about that more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Maya. We're going to come back with more from Maya McGinnis here in just a minute, folks. Uh, Continuing on, she is the president of the Bipartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Um, Frankly, Maya, we really appreciate having you on this program. We love having these kind of honest discussions that I don't think are out there enough. And we're going to be continuing on with that more in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. Folks, are you concerned with stock market volatility? What if you can invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or portfolio where you know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises? You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. This is a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. And by investing, you can do well for yourself by doing good for others. So check out our friends at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and see how you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Maya, um, so I think one thing that gets lost when we talk budgets and deficits and debt is it becomes sort of an Excel spreadsheet. It's numbers. And I think the numbers seem like monopoly numbers to a lot of people, right? Um, so, for example, we want to talk here about, look, we need to have entitlement reform. There's no if, buts, ands. It's, you know, two-thirds of our budget Congress doesn't even control. It's just mandatory. And Sam and myself and you, we have loved ones who need Social Security. They're in it or they're expecting it real soon, right? But I think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is I'm a father. You have children based on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia never lies. Um, How does this – when you look at these things, does that concern you for their future? Where you have so much debt, where you're paying interest more, you're paying spending more than money in the in the federal budget on interest debts than you are things that matter. That it will create inflation, higher interest rates. Does this concern you as a mother? Uh, I mean, it's it's right. It's both uh, systemic and personal. This issue, um, and so first, you know, we are actually spending this year more on interest payments to finance the debt of the fast past than the entire federal budget spends on programs for children. That's how backwards this is. But absolutely, I mean, there are many reasons that I worry about the effects of the national debt. They're economic. They're leaving us vulnerable for future emergencies. They're foreign policy and national security, where we're increasingly vulnerable and dependent on other countries. But one of the bottom line issues here is we are spending a lot of money because we want to. We like those things. And we are refusing to pay for it because none of us like paying taxes. And so the other option is we are then saying we will borrow this money and we'll push those bills onto the future, onto our kids. And I will say my kids refuse to listen to my deficit speeches at the dinner table. So shame on them for not caring. But no, but it is. And it's hard to get younger people to care about it because they think 
as we all did when we were in our teens and our 20s, you're like, the world is great. Everything's going to be fine. I don't need to worry about the future. But the truth, and, and it's a discouraging truth right now, is we are leaving a country and, frankly, a world that is much riskier, much more difficult to navigate, much more filled with potential risk to the next generation than we've ever seen before. Yeah, it's, it's... And this goes well beyond the debt. It goes to national security, to the effects of technology, to all sorts of things that they need a strong budget to be able to respond to. And instead, we are giving them tens of trillions of dollars in debt that they owe just because we were unwilling to pay for these things ourselves, even though we are the beneficiaries of them. Yeah, one of the things that I find interesting, Maya, is that it, the the media and, and academia, whatever, has sold kids on the idea that we are facing an existential crisis, potentially the death of the planet within 20 years from environmental issues. That's not particularly realistic, but we are facing a financial cliff that would affect them far, far more than anything the environment ever will in their lifetimes coming up very soon. Well, I think it's interesting. I actually think the environment and fiscal challenges have something in common, which is there's no immediate moment where it turns into the problem. If you default, that happened on a certain day. If there's a government shutdown, that happens on a certain day. But when it comes to these issues, they slowly compound if we don't do anything about them. But there's no one moment where you say we can't return. And so you have members of Congress constantly saying, we can punt this off until another day. But there should be no disagreement on the severity of having the amount of debt we have. We're not only are we spending more on in interest than we are kids today, five years from now, we'll be spending more on in interest payments than we are in national defense. This is in an increasingly risky world. And so I, I don't know how you get kids to take this issue on and make it their own. Again, I think there's this eternal optimism that comes with youth that means people can't believe it's really that big a problem. And numbers like trillion are so hard to follow. It's very difficult to personalize this. And lastly, the solutions, they're not fun. Here's the truth. We have to raise taxes, cut spending, fix our entitlement programs. Nobody thinks that's going to be fun. But you have to do that for the, the sustainability of our economic health. Uh, and so it's hard to get people to rally and, and march in the streets calling for fiscal reforms. But really, it's one of the most important things that we could do that also affects all the other issues people do worry about. I don't know if you saw the piece that was in The Hill on the 4th uh, by Andrew Hale said China's in default on a trillion dollars in debt to U.S. bondholders. Will the U.S. force repayment? This is debt that was created by the the previous government, uh, you know, prior to the the Maoist takeover. But in international norms, that doesn't erase the debt. China is the only country on earth not paying that. He actually suggested simply we, we essentially nationalize that debt um, and wipe it off our books, take, you know, balance it against a trillion dollars in, in our treasuries that China holds, which would free up $95 million a month in interest payments. Is something like that practical or possible? And, and how much would that trillion dollars actually make a difference to our overall financial situation? Yeah, I saw that piece, and I did think that was interesting. And I definitely think that a lot of this is is interconnected with the tensions that we have with China and the fact that we are dependent on them, that they own almost a trillion dollars of our treasuries. But I don't think unilaterally sort of nationalizing that debt or declaring that we're not going to repay what we owe China would be good because markets are beyond just the, the bilateral agreements. If we were to do that with China, there would be growing concerns through other countries. And I think that would hasten the effort that there already is to move away from the dollar as a reserve currency. And that is something that benefits us tremendously. So I think it's actually very important that the U.S. not make changes that risk its 
status right now, something that we benefit from, of being a safe haven in the reserve currency. I think what we really have to focus on is balancing our own book, spending only as much as we're willing to pay in taxes, borrowing only when there's economic emergencies and a real reason to do so. And we can't find any shortcuts around those those hard truths. So let's talk entitlements for a minute. Let's get a little more detail on it. So like we said, there are people who are on Social Security now. We'll just use Social Security example, but there's Medicare too. Um, and you've got people who are close to retirement age. Um, what do you think is the type of retirement reform we really should be talking about without affecting those who really count on this right now for day-to-day living? Yeah, and I think that's the right question because I think we need to fix these programs in a way that strengthens and preserves them for the people who most need them, but understands that both of them are headed towards insolvency. Social Security, in just over a decade, if we do nothing, there will be across the board 23% benefit cuts. And yet you have politicians of all stripes making promises not to touch Social Security or Medicare. Medicare also will have across the board 10% provider cuts if we don't make changes. So these folks who are promising you not to touch your entitlement are promising you that you will have provider and benefit cuts that will affect everybody. Instead, what we should be doing is thought out policy solutions. In Social Security, there's about four or five options. You can raise payroll taxes or the payroll tax cap. You can raise the retirement age, which makes sense because we're living longer, and you could start it now but have it kick in very, very gradually over time for people under 55, 50, whatever. You can slow the growth of benefits, and I would do that on the high end, not across the board. Uh, And you can fix the way we calculate inflation, which overstates it right now. There are a lot of fixes we could put in for Social Security, but the longer we wait, and we've already waited too long, the more difficult they will be. Maya, I'm sorry, you, you talked about slowing benefits on the high end of the scale. This is something that's come up a lot on both sides is means testing for Social Security. Uh, I've I've fought this battle with Republicans for years and just said, look, we're just going to have to do this. This is going to come. There's one objection coming from the right. There's another from the left. It's from the left, though. I don't understand their objection because it seems like that falls in line with everything else that they talk make about. The, make the, the rich tax. pay their fair yeah, share. tax the rich. Right. Why do we need to be, from their perspective, giving – wealthy people this benefit uh, rather than means testing it and directing it at the people that need it? It's just a great question because it's honestly a policy I have never understood. If you support progressive policies on the tax side, you should also support progressive policies on the spending side. And right now we have actually very, we have regressive Social Security benefits where the well-off, their benefits are more, reflecting that they paid in more in taxes. And so the concern is, oh, if you if you reduce the benefits for rich people in Social Security, there won't be a stronger constituency of support. They won't fight to save Social Security. That's just not true. The biggest growth we've seen in government benefits in past years have been like an EITC and Medicaid, programs that were directed towards the poor. So there are support. There is support for smart programs that help people who need them the most. And when I go out and I talk to people in town halls, they always say, means test my benefits. If I don't need it, no problem. I just want it there if I do. So when I hear Democrats saying you can't touch benefits for rich people or having someone like Bernie Sanders actually suggesting increasing benefits for everybody, including rich people, it means it's more money getting spent on those who don't need it and less money for things that you might really worry about, like education, right. you know, investment in, in children or at-risk youth, things like that. So I think it's an internally very inconsistent argument. And I think means testing is one of the areas that makes the most sense given the situation we're in. 
with Social Security and Medicare. Well, I think that I think the left's argument on this is based upon union loyalties because they get good pensions and they don't want to see a cut for the members. But that's a that's a red meat conversation for another day. All right, so let's talk about this. What do you think? I think it's really important that the U.S. stay the economic superpower in the world. Um, we have certain benefits that most countries do not have, nor will they ever have. Um, my question for you is: What do you think we need to do realistically? to make sure we keep and maintain that position for the next couple of decades? I think there's a few things. One, we need to start paying for all the policies that we do instead of borrowing. Two, we need to switch our budget priorities. Right now, about 85% of our budget is consumption, 15% is investment. We need to turn that on its head. We need to be making investments in human capital, basic R&D. We just put a lot of money into infrastructure, so I think that that should be fine for a while. Um, and we need to reduce overall spending so that more of that money can be in the private sector and making private sector investments. And finally, we need to switch our spending priorities, which are all focused on the old, into investments in the next generation. Because just why it's what, the same reason it's damaging to borrow so much and push that into the future and to kids, not failing to invest in them, but giving very comfortable benefits to my father who doesn't necessarily need them. Those priorities do not keep us strong as an economic superpower. We also want to deregulate in a lot of ways and have a smart trade policy. All of those things which are going to recognize the importance of our being an economic superpower in this highly integrated global economy. You know, one of the discussions, Maya, that never comes up that, I mean, and, and this may be a little bit outside your, your specific area of expertise, is the cost of government programs has gone up dramatically far more than the delivery of services from those programs. You're seeing a huge bureaucratic bloat. And it would seem at some point like one part or the other needs to start getting serious about leaning down government to actually deliver the dollars where they're intended to go. 100 percent. 100%. If you talk to anybody in agencies right now, they are feeling the bloat. There's been so much money that has been a big run up in funding agencies in the past years, that there are situations where people are traveling because they don't know what to do with their budget. There are people who are absolutely underworked, and it's well-known, and that, that undermines the morale in place. So, listen, I don't want to take away from the main point, which is we have to fix our entitlement programs. We're not going to be able to do this without revenues. But there are savings to be had throughout the government, in the Defense Department, in the healthcare industries, in every one of our programs that's out there, and in the government bureaucracy itself. And this should be something, in, in order to help regain trust in government, that we are able to really go through with a fine-tooth comb and revamp a lot of these programs, free them of some of the bureaucratic constraints, so that people can have more trust that if they are paying tax dollars, that those tax dollars are going to be used well. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of that is critical. Maya McGinnis, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate having you on the program. Folks, you can follow her on Twitter at Maya McGinnis, M-A-C McGinnis, at Budget Hawks, at FixUS.org, and CRFB.org. Maya, again, thank you so much for joining us on the program. We love having you on and look forward to having you on again in, in the near future. Great. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Join us next for our podcast segment. Um, We'll be honored to have Kylie Kipper straight from Houston talking crime and baseball. We're very excited about this. It's been a long time since we had a Kylie Kipper. Oh, she's got got a doozy. So, folks, follow us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Share the um, podcast, and we'll talk to you here briefly on the podcast episode. Bye.
Welcome to the podcast-only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. Up next, it's been a long time. It's been a very long time since we had a Kylie True Crime update. Kylie Kipper, our producer, hates being on the microphone. Today, she's been forced. You're better at it. You no, you're great at it. I'm That's more, the... I'm getting more comfortable. I meant. Okay. Two years will do yeah. that to you. Two years will do that to it's you. Been, it's been a while, huh? So, hi, Kylie, you're actually in a state where there's been sort of this mystery. This young man was missing seven years ago, and then he showed up. And, you know, look, Americans love a kid being recovered story. All people do. If you don't, you don't have a heart, this, right? So this is a strange one, though, so, Chuck. So we're all excited about it. Then come to find out, eh, there's a little bit more to the story, which sadly seems to be a lot to these stories now. There always seems to be a little bit more to the story, right? So you've done some digging on it. Um, tell us about it. What's what's the true story here? Yeah, so there's um, a few pieces of this investigation, which it's still ongoing. They have another press conference tonight, but they had one yesterday, which has caused a lot of feathers to be ruffled. So Rudy Farias was um, 17 years old when his mom reported him missing after he took the dogs for a walk. It turns out that he had just run away and his mom had told him that police are looking for him and will put him in jail if he does not come home. So at that time, he went home two days later, but his mom never reported him of coming home. She just kept the investigation saying he's still missing. Um, So he was discovered this week unconscious outside of a church in Houston where the police, when they reported to it, to the scene, had just ended up calling his mom saying, we found your son. And she was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, She posted photos, I'm putting in air quotes, of him in the hospital Um, which people, family members, his aunts, cousins have come out to say that those photos were taken in 2012 and they're not recent photos in which he did not, after being discovered at this church, did not go to the hospital to get any of the help that he may have needed. Um, The yesterday in the investigation, police chief had said that they had many run-ins with their family and that the entire time his mom would just say he is still missing. If they would ask who he is in the house because at this point he's gotten older. She would say, "This is my nephew," and give him a yes. fake name. So, so he was around. They, they, they like set him up with a fake ID or something, and were telling people he he yep. wasn't him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, the weird part about it is, is when they did the investigation with him and his mom, Rudy obviously would not speak about any wrongdoing of his mom the past eight years. So he would just say, you know. Yeah, I was living at home. She just wanted me to keep it private, X, Y, Z. Until he got separated um, from his mom, which then he was doing an interview with a detective and this community activist named Quanell X. So this is where it gets like all kind of different sides of the story. So the police chief in the interview yesterday said Rudy did not report any sexual assault charges by his or sexual assault wrongdoing by his mom. However, this Quanell gentleman who came out and was speaking and seemed very passionate about it, was crying in the interviews. Um, he was in the interview with the detective and he clearly stated many times of sexual encounters with his mom that ultimately led him to run away after eight years, which is how he ended up at the church. So he had stolen his mom's car to get away from his mom. And some of these can be a bit disturbing, um, but, you know, many things. So a little backtrack, a little history about his parents is his dad was also a part of the Houston police 
department um, until he committed suicide in around 2011, I believe, um, after they were investigating him for being corrupt. Um, so people think that that has something to do with why the police chief is saying that there was that Rudy did not report any of this. However, Quanell has come out, done a bunch of interviews on News Nation and um, Fox, and is just saying he's reported that his mom would make him play daddy and would sleep naked in bed together. And oh my gosh, he'd oh use that gosh. kind of imagination, which what ultimately would lead him to try to escape his mom again after eight years. Um, he would take, she would take Rudy to work and make her or make him do her job. Um, what what was her job? Do we know? I don't, it just seems like some like low level clerical, clerical job. type job. Yeah. Um, was, was would, there any like financial insight? I mean, was she like raising yes. money for the search for him or something? What's the, yes. So she did have, um, a fundraiser online, which her goal was 75,000. I have not been able to find if she actually raised that money, but something else that came up was in Texas. If you have a child that goes missing after three years, you get a basically like a life insurance payout. So that's another thing oh that they're goodness. looking to see if she got that money. Um, but an ex-husband came out and said, this is a little background about his mom now, is an ex-husband came out and said that she was a bigamist. And what I could find is in 1997, she married some, she married a guy. Then again, in 1998, she married another guy. In that same year, she wanted a um, annulment on the basis that she was already married to the previous guy, which neither of these is the police detective. Um, in 2007, <laughs> she then marries the detective for the Houston Police Department. Um, and then in from 1999 <laughs> to 2010, there's another marriage that's been found. And then a fourth marriage from 2009 to 2012 that has also been found. Boy, that's some kids found. sure draw the short end of the stick who they get stuck with parents. And folks, for you, if you don't know, bigamy is when the crime of marrying someone while you're still married to someone else. In case you don't know that term, I, I hope it doesn't come up a lot in your conversations at home. But nonetheless, that's what it means. So what do you think happens now? What are the police saying? Or what, I guess we'll know more tonight, right? I mean, that's really yeah, the key. So um, everyone. So after this investigation between his mom and his um, and Rudy, the detective that sat there with Quanell X, this community activist, left the room and Quanell said, I'm going to do interviews on this. Is there anything you don't want me to say? And he said, no, you can say whatever you want. The detective then went into the next room and arrested or put handcuffs, not arrested, put handcuffs on the mom, which indicated that Quanell says this detective thought his mom had committed a crime. However, at the end of the day, they ended up just walking both of them out and they left together. So now no one is 100% positive where Rudy or his mom are located today. Well, how old was he when he disappeared? He was 17. Yeah, they they may say he was of sound mind to be in a relationship. I bet I bet that's part of it. So we're going to have you talking about this again next week. You'll you'll keep us up to date when you're back in the studio. Now, yep. folks, so you don't understand, Kylie is in Houston today, not because she loves the summer weather of Houston, but nobody because, nobody loves the summer weather or the smell of Houston. Yeah, in the but summer. her her fiance Isaiah Campbell, who's been playing double A for the Seattle Mariners affiliate in Little Rock, was called up to the Big League Club, the Mariners, yesterday. Yep. And Kylie hopped on a plane and flew out there. And Kylie, just what was that experience like? What were your feelings? I mean, it's, you know, look, a lot of people don't get to do this. So yeah. how, how was it for you? I mean, sometimes, still to this moment, it doesn't feel real. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think I did an interview yesterday with an MLB TV reporter and it was very hard to articulate how I was feeling and, you know, just like the emotions that go into it because he has just had this dream since he was little and it's finally coming true. He is yesterday. He was not in the game yet. So we're still waiting for his actual official debut, but he is on the roster and we're hoping it's tonight or tomorrow. Well, hey, folks, as you know, Sam and I uh, adore Kylie and, and the great work she does on the show and Jamie. And I, so I was last night watching two teams I could care less about, the Astros and Mariners waiting for him to pitch. And apparently Isaiah's good teammate was the starter last night and decided, like, let me pitch like a Cy Young Award, award winner this year. That's what he did. So Isaiah did not get in the game. So this weekend, if you can, pull up the Mariners and Houston Astros and look for Isaiah Campbell to come in late innings and help the team yeah. out. Yeah. Can, can we just get Kylie to post a clip of his appearance so yeah, I don't have to watch yeah, a Mariners yeah, Astros game, yeah, Chuck? Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. So before you get Kylie off and end the podcast, we just want to give a congratulations. And since Kylie's engaged, she'll appreciate this. Jimmy, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter today are celebrating their 77th anniversary. Now, folks, let me let me talk about this for a minute here. The U.S. Census says 6% of married couples in the United States make the 50th wedding anniversary. One-tenth of a percent make their 70th. For those 75 years or more, they don't even keep the statistic. So that's that's how rare well, that is. And there's Sam makes a good point. You know, it's longevity the and all those things. The lifespan of a man yeah. is like 79 yeah. I mean, years There's in a this lot country, to this. So. But there's a lot of people who just don't want to be together 77 years. So there's something to this, right? <laughs> it's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing and congratulations to both of them without yeah. a doubt. And and it speaks to great character on both. It really does. It really does and it it, it, it speaks to a great partnership. Yeah. So happy anniversary to the Carters. Kylie, we're very excited for you and we're excited for his first pitch to Major League Baseball this weekend and so we'll keep in touch with you on that. Folks, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can follow us on breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Uh, besides the radio stations we're on, you can also catch us on podcasts wherever you listen to a podcast. Please share, please rate. Thanks a million. We'll be back next week. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now.